0: What is up, fellas? Welcome back to the Financial Planner Growth Show. I'm your host, Kirk Kersey. And today's episode is a little bit different than what we will typically do. It's a longer form interview, but I actually recorded this back in June of last year, which seems like ages ago, especially with all the changes that we're experiencing in the world right now. And we recorded this thinking that we would launch the podcast a little bit quicker than we ended up doing and under a totally different format. But the episode was honestly so stinking good that I wanted to make sure we get it out to you. This interview is with author and speaker, Joey Coleman. Joey wrote a book called Never Lose a Customer Again. And that is what his work centers on is customer or in our case, client retention. Um, and just creating amazing experiences for your clients. He has this fantastic concept called the first 100 days. And for those of you that are listening that have done any kind of work with us, you know that we believe wholeheartedly in creating an amazing experience for your clients, especially new clients in that first 100 days. We actually use a lot of the philosophies and tools, From Joey's book. I'm staring at it here on my bookshelf uh, as we speak. Joey has spoken on some massive stages and worked with organizations like Whirlpool, NASA. Uh, Volkswagen principle. Uh, So he's very familiar with the wealth management world, as you'll see um, as he talks in this interview about how we can apply some of the principles that he's learned from top hospitality companies and other great organizations uh, and apply those principles to creating an amazing experience for our clients. Uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. If you want to learn more about what we are up to with this show and all things Uh, digital marketing, digital experiences for your clients, you can check us out at FP, as in financial planner, fpgrowth.com. Look forward to chatting with you guys. Let's jump into the show. Joey, my friend, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Kurt. Oh, thank you for taking the time. So I shared with you a little bit before we started pressing record here that we have sent your book out to quite a few friends and clients in the financial planning world. And uh, I, I wish every advisor was forced to read it.
1: I appreciate the support and uh, for what it's worth, my experience and my exposure in the industry. Uh, yeah, let's just say it's an industry that's ripe for some uh, client enhancement, uh, you know, <laughs> (laughs) and that's not a criticism of anybody listening. It's just the nature of the evolution of the industry, the evolution of the clients that are being served, and kind of how the playing field is changing when it comes to client expectations, what they're looking for in an advisor, what they're looking for when it comes to wealth management, what they're looking for in relationships in general.
0: Mm. So true. So true. And I'm so excited for you to share your expertise here with us today. So before we dive into the meat of the show, talk to us a little bit about who you are and what prompted you to write the book.
1: Sure. So I am a full-time professional speaker and consultant. Uh, I spend most of my days on the road, traveling around the world, teaching companies how to keep the clients that they worked so hard to get. You know, most businesses are focused on acquisition and they over-index on their efforts at acquisition and sales and marketing, as opposed to keeping the people that they work so hard to try to obtain as clients. And so mm-hmm. that's the bulk of my work. It has been the bulk of my work for, we're coming up on 20 years now, not to date myself, uh, but, you know, I've got an eclectic <laughs> background that has led me to identify a number of ways that you can build personal and emotional connections and systems and strategies for keeping customers and clients
0: coming back for more. Mm. So every advisor listening is already salivating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my, my pleasure. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I often say that uh, if you don't prioritize your client, someone else will. And mm-hmm. if you doubt the validity of that statement, I would just ask those listening to think about how many of their current clients were with a different advisor before Mm. they came to them. Mm -hmm. And chances are you've got a lot of folks in (laughs) your portfolio who used to be with other folks who just weren't getting it done for whatever reason. And sadly, lots of times, the reasons they left those advisors are going to be the same reasons they leave you. Mm. Mm. But nobody wants to have those hard conversations. Mm -hmm. until our conversation today,
0: (laughs) (laughs) until our conversation today, hopefully hopefully some advisors that this is already hot on their minds and it's been something that they've been wrestling with for a while, but just not really sure what to do about it. I hope that you can speak some life and, 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 uh, give them some access to some of the tools and strategies that you've developed. So the book is called never lose a customer again, turn any sale into lifelong loyalty in a hundred days. And in the book, you kind of kick things off to a degree, uh, redefining a little bit of what customer experience actually means. Would you talk us through kind of your, your definition of customer experience? Sure. Happy to. I think most people use the phrase customer experience
1: and customer service Uh, Interchangeably. And I think that's part of the problem and part of the challenge we have. I think of customer service as the assistance and advice that a company provides to the people who buy or use its products or services. Mm -hmm. So, customer service is a very reactive interaction with your customers or your clients. Whereas, customer experience or client experience, I would define as how clients perceive their interactions with your customers. All of the interactions, right? It's a much more proactive approach. And I think at the end of the day, at at the risk of uh, alienating folks who spend a lot of time uh, looking at numbers and being a little more, if we will, left brain oriented, uh, your customers want to feel like they matter they want to feel like you care. And let's be candid. Most financial advisors' websites talk about that. Their marketing Mm -hmm. materials talk about that. They even talk about it in the pitch meetings and in some of the meetings when they're together, saying things like, we don't think of ourselves as advisors. We think of ourselves as strategic partners. (laughs) And we're in it for the long run. And, And I'm not trying to be smug or glib about those approaches. The problem is in 2019 and leaning into 2020, here, uh, clients are becoming more savvy. They know that that's marketing speak. And what they're looking to see is, is your behavior and are the feelings I have based on our interactions going to match the expectation that you're setting for me when we're in the chase? Mm -hmm. See, everybody likes the chase. Everybody wants to, you know, get new clients and, and sign new clients and, most people don't spend as much time on the catch. What happens after they become a client? How are you continuing to let them know that they're important and they matter, especially in a financial advisor capacity where you may meet with them once a year or if they're high net worth, maybe once a quarter. Even still, that's not a whole lot of face time and I imagine many of the, our listeners uh, struggle to even get that FaceTime, right? They want to do the mm-hmm. quarterly meeting and the client's like, can we just do this via email? Just send me the the reports and let me see. here." how about we do a 20-minute phone call? And you're like, no, I want FaceTime. I want to let you know I care. Mm-hmm. And it's really challenging because mm-hmm. the expectations are changing, but the behaviors are changing as well. And that's why I think of client experience as being more of a proactive how they feel based on all the touch points and interactions they have with you.
0: Yeah, it's so important. I love I love that example that you shared about, you know, our, our company is very much focused on the marketing side of the equation, though we touch sales and, and client experience as part of that. Uh, but it is, it is interesting to me how intentional we have to be about how are we holding ourselves out to the marketplace and are we actually honoring that commitment? We talk oftentimes about we got to get that messaging and positioning right, but then we got to almost audit are we actually acting in accordance with what that messaging and that positioning is promising to deliver? Right. Kurt, it's so true. It's so true. And I, and I love the way you use a word audit, which is word
1: that makes most people anxious. But the reason it makes most people anxious is because most people don't pay attention to the details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If somebody says audit, you don't have to be nervous. If you have your stuff in gear and in order, you're fine. Mm You're good. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is most companies have great intention, right? They, they come together and they say, we want to start a firm that's different than the place we used to work at. And we want to build something that the marketplace has never seen. And we're really going to care. And they they put together this great language and they're, they're passionate about it and they're excited about it. But as the business grows and the assets under management increase and the number of advisors on your team increases, You get further and further away from the spark that started this whole endeavor. And if we don't come back and check in and say, how are we measuring up against what we say we're going to do? How are we measuring up against what we believe we're doing? And instead of just looking in the mirror and asking us to self-assess, which is certainly important, what would our clients say? If we actually ask them, and I know a lot of firms survey their clients, but let's be candid, most of the surveys, uh, many, I'll say, not most, many surveys are designed to elicit specific responses, as opposed Mm -hmm. to being designed to elicit uh, actual and honest responses. Uh, You know, if we really get into it and roll up our sleeves, there isn't a business on the planet that can't dramatically improve its customer experience from where it is today. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of are we willing to put in the work and make the commitments of time, effort, and resource. Amen.
0: Amen. You're preaching, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> you, get me, you
1: get me wound up, Kurt. And I'll just go,
0: you know. You're preaching in the best way possible. I mean, I, you you said it exactly right. Our industry needs it. It, it the, you know, kudos to the advisors that have the, the boldness to step out, whether it's in your, your own new firm or inside of the organization that you're already in and say, hey, we're going to adapt to some of these changes that are coming down the pike. We're going to change with our clients. We're going to respond proactively to the changes that they're asking us for. That's hard work. It's a labor of love. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what are those Changes that need to be made. You know, one of the things that uh, really attracted me to your book in uh, the work that we do with clients is this idea of focusing on those first 100 days. Would you share with our audience a little bit why those first 100 days are, are really what matter most?
1: Sure. I think there's a couple of reasons the first 100 days matter. Let's talk uh, about the client first, and then let's talk about the advisors. So thinking about the client, uh, in putting together the book and doing the research, we looked at businesses, small, medium, and large, international and domestic, product and service oriented. I mean, we were all over the place. And what we found is that across all industries worldwide, somewhere between 20 and 80% of new clients will decide to stop doing business with you before they reach the 100-day anniversary. Wow. In banking, it's 32%. In the cell phone industry, it's 21%. In the restaurant industry, it's usually between 45 and 80%. Auto mechanics is 68%. Software as a service is 20%. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Now, here's where it gets interesting. When I talk to financial advisors, they say, Joey, you don't understand. They can't get all the paperwork done in the first 100 days. (laughs) They're they're not going to leave us that quick. We're still getting them set up and getting things up and running. What the research shows is why they may not physically decide to quit you, so to speak, and move on to another advisor. Mentally, they've already checked out. Mm -hmm. And when it comes time to getting more of their assets under management, you know, the typical, uh, I I believe that the most recent research I saw is that the typical uh, person with a net worth of over a million dollars, which I know is in many ways the type of clients most advisors are seeking, right? Mm -hmm. The bigger Mm -hmm. net worth has 2.4 advisors. Mm -hmm. So let's stop and think about that. You think you've landed the big one. And they're actually also married to someone else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It kind of changes the dynamic, right? And so I think at the end of the day, what we need to recognize is if we really want the long-term client, if we really want the deep personal and emotional connection and the long-term relationship where we're handling all of their wealth advising, uh, asset managing activities, We need to create remarkable customer experiences and remarkable Mm -hmm. client experiences, and we need to do it early on in the relationship. So that's the research shows that the first 100 days is important to the clients. It's Mm -hmm. also important to the advisors. Why? Mm -hmm. Because if I ask you to sprint for three months, as a general rule, you can do it. If I ask you to sprint all day, every day for the rest of your career, it becomes a lot more difficult. This is just the practical realities of being in the industry. And so what I've tried to do in the framework that I set out in the book is to outline a new client onboarding process. It doesn't mean we're done at day 100, but what it does mean if on day 101, the client is feeling well taken care of, well provided for, they're feeling that they're important, they're feeling good about their relationship. The research shows that the typical client will stay for five years. Mm. So we take that huge defection rate that happens in the first 100 days, and we basically flip it on its head and we get folks to stay for five years if we just make those first 100 days matter.
0: Mm. Mm. And not only, you know, do they stay for those five years, right, but but they, they have the opportunity to become raving fans and advocates, which I know we'll get to in a minute. I want to circle back around to something that you said that I think is really magical is this uh, this idea of of wallet share or or you know total household investable assets. I, I hadn't really thought about that point in the process, Joey, until you brought that up of really what we're going for in those first hundred days is if we don't have all of the investable assets under our roof, then there's an opportunity on a, on day 101 <laughs> that the rest of those assets come over, right? That we've created such 100%. a compelling experience for that client to say, "Why would I work with anyone else?" Yes, Kurt, you hit the
1: nail on the head. And here's the thing: the problem most advisors have, not all, but most, is that they try to get the whole thing right out of the blocks. Mm they try to get everything. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like meeting someone. I I liken a lot of this stuff to dating, right? Because we've all, regardless of kind of what role you play in the organization, uh, you know, we may have advisors listening. We may have office managers. We may have, you know, folks that are more junior. We may have analysts listening. We've got a lot of different potential roles and positions that might be listening. But here's Mm -hmm. the thing. Everybody who's listening at some point has probably been on a date. (laughs) Okay. At least once, maybe even more. And so here's the interesting thing. Imagine going on a date, you go to dinner, you're like, I think this has potential. And you sit down and you're, you're going to place your order and then get into the conversation. And before the waiter or waitress comes over to take your order, the person you're sitting across from says, so I'd love to figure out a time to meet your parents. (laughs) you're probably not going to even order. You're probably (laughs) going to say, you know, this is a little too fast. We got to build into this a little. We got to establish some trust. We have to establish some connection. This feels way too rushed. Advisors do the same thing. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, you know, in order for us to do a comprehensive analysis of your assets, we need to know all of them. Where (laughs) are they? What are Who do you have it with? What's the name of the broker? How many shares do you have? What insurance policies do you have? What is your house worth? How many different bank accounts do you have? What's the money in each of those accounts? When's the last time you got a raise? Do you think you're going to get another raise? What's your promotion going to be like next time <laughs> around? You know what I mean? And all these questions that get veiled as and cloaked as, well, this is about us knowing you. Because if we really know you, we'll be able to better advise you. When the reality is, yes, that is partially true but it's also because you want all the assets (laughs) and everybody knows that. Let's just address the elephant in the room. You know, there's plenty of scenes in, in the movies. And we see this a lot in TV shows that deal with, you know, either hedge funds or investments and things like that, where they say, well, just give me a little piece. Give me a, give me a million to play with. Give me a hundred thousand to play with. Let me show you some returns. And then if I do well, you give me the rest. Mm -hmm. I think a similar addressing the elephant in the room uh, conversation could be had with prospective new clients where you just say, look, here's the deal. You obviously came here because you're not happy with where you're at and you're looking for something different. I obviously would like to work with you on everything. If that isn't abundantly clear, let me explicitly state it. Mm -hmm. However, I would totally understand if you were skeptical about bringing everything over right away let's work together. Let's set some goals. Let's figure out what we can do. And if I earn your trust and if I prove that I am able to take care of your assets and grow your assets and protect your assets or whatever positioning you're using, we have a bigger conversation down the road in, say, four or five months where we talk about, What's happened thus far, how you're feeling, and is there an opportunity for us to work together even more? Mm. You pre-frame the conversation. What that does is a client is it allows them to say, okay, so this guy agrees or this gal agrees that they have to achieve before they get any more. Mm. I'm not going to have to worry about getting hit up for more until they've actually had some proof points. Mm. Okay, I can trust this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it automatically disarms the conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's you know we we, as advisors and in some companies, I was trained often beat them to the objection, right? If you can get there first and take that off the table, but but I think the way that you position that is so wise in saying let's just have that conversation up front, but then that's also set the expectation of what does success actually look like, and I almost hear you saying of rather than set the bar at. Uh, We're if we can achieve the X rate of return, or if we can beat your other advisor on uh, on investment return, but instead setting the bar of what are your actual goals. And if we help you through the experience that we've created in our financial planning firm, if we can help you move further towards that success towards those goalposts, then we'd love the opportunity to talk about what it might look like to, uh, to work in a more holistic manner. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's recognizing that, you know, a, a lot of advisors I've talked to over the years say, well, Joey, you just don't understand when clients are coming over, they want better returns than the last person mm. got them. Mm. And I'm like, yes. And yes, I feel that they want to do better. But guess what? A huge portion of that is totally out of the advisor's That's control. Right. Totally out of the advisor. And here's the kicker. The advisor knows that. And the client knows <laughs> That's that. Right. But it's easier for everybody to say, it's about rate of return because it allows them to avoid the actual conversation, go into any industry. And when they say, well, it's about price, it's never about price. <laughs> it's never actually about price. But price becomes the thing that everybody can object to and push back on that everybody wants to be awkward about. Why don't you say, look, this is what it is. I am one of the few professional speakers who has my speaking fees public on my website. If you want to book Joey to speak, you go on my website, and what you'll see is it's $20,000 for a one-hour keynote or $25,000 for a day-long workshop. That's it. Straightforward. It's right there. Now, some people say, well, Joey, what about the people, you know, that are turned off by that? folks, if you only have a budget of $300 for your keynote speaker, I'm not your guy. And that's not me saying that $300 isn't a good amount to spend and there aren't plenty of amazing speakers that could deliver a fantastic presentation for you. It's just a different conversation, Mm. right? And this is where I think advisors have a huge opportunity to just be honest. You're asking your clients to bare their souls. You're asking them to show where all their money is, which most people have huge psychological issues around money. Mm. You're asking them to be honest about their fears. You're asking them to tell you their dreams. And you're asking them to give you the control or the faith to recommend how they achieve those things or how they protect the wealth they've earned over the years. That's a huge ask. Mm -hmm. And it's usually done in a 30-minute conversation. Where, yeah, you offered them water or coffee or a tea or a juice or whatever you have, but you're trying to build rapport quickly. And any advisor listening to this, I'm sure, has been in the situation. They may not have had these type of honest conversations with their spouse. Mm. And you're asking them to have those conversations right out of the blocks? Mm-hmm. Might want to pace it a little.
0: Pump the brakes. <laughs> you might want to date. It's, it's all you fine. Might date a little not, while. Yeah, I might want to <laughs> date a little.
1: Just go on a couple dates. See what it works.
0: You know. You know well, I love it. Uh, you know, I mentioned one of the reasons I picked up the book was this idea of a hundred days. But the reason that I really fell in love with the book, and we've sent it to so many clients, is the the simplicity of this eight phase framework that you put together, and the ability that gives us to go back and really audit what what are we doing in these different phases to either attract and and build a deeper level of trust or repel and almost push away some of our clients or prospective clients would you take us through Joey maybe high level the eight phases and then you know i i, I love your expertise in the industry already <laughs> and if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing with us where do you feel like advisors have the most opportunity where's kind of the low hanging fruit for advisors to really drill down Inside of those eight phases. Sure. Happy to, Kurt. So uh,
1: to set a little context of the eight phases, I believe that there are eight key phases that every client has the potential to go through on their client journey. The only way they will transition from one phase to the next is if you affirmatively hold their hand and help them with that transition, Mm -hmm. right? So they have the potential to fall off anywhere along the line in these eight phases, let me give you an overview of what each of the phases are. I'll tell you, they all start with the letter A, with the idea being that if we're doing everything right, our clients are giving us straight A's because they love the <laughs> experience, okay? So phase one is the assess phase. This is when a prospect is considering whether or not they want to do business with you. So if someone is considering signing on as a client to your firm, they're not really sure. In common parlance, we call this the marketing and sales process. Mm. We then go to phase two, admit. This is day one in the first 100 days. Mm. This is when the prospect acknowledges that they have a problem or a need and they believe you can help them. They sign on the dotted line. They hand over their hard-earned cash. They officially transition from being a prospect to being a client. We then come to phase three, the affirm phase. This is buyer's remorse. It happens in every exchange in the marketplace, and the client begins to doubt the decision they made to work with you, immediately after making the decision. (laughs) Like literally, they will be walking out of your office, having signed the paperwork to officially become a client and start to move assets over, and they will be doubting the decision they just made. Almost everybody listening to this podcast has heard the phrase buyer's remorse. I won't embarrass anybody who's listening by asking them to raise their hand, Of course, I can't see them, right? (laughs) But think how you would answer the question. Does your firm, does your business have a system and process designed to address the buyer's remorse that your clients are feeling? Mm. You've heard the phrase, but are you actually doing anything about it? This brings us to phase four, the activate stage. This is the first real moment of truth, right? This may be the uh, official kickoff meeting where you're coming in and you're presenting your recommendations. This may be when you're actually in the, in the process of saying, you know, okay, here's how we would handle your assets. Here's how we would manage your money, et cetera. In this phase, the activate phase, we want to energize the relationship as we formally start to work together. We want to let them know that that doing business with us is going to be unlike any business experience they've ever had not any advisor experience they've ever had any experience they've had in their life ah that's an interesting the game is changing right so the competition is not the other advisors they've been with yeah the competition is every remarkable experience they have ever had at the high end your competition is Tesla Mercedes, the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, uh, Emirates Airlines, okay, not Southwest, right? You're playing at the high, and not to say Southwest doesn't have a great experience, right? But you're playing at the highest levels. You have to think about the client experiences they're having as consumers.
0: That's what you're being compared to. I just heard a lot of advisors take a big gulp (laughs) as they thought about that question. (laughs) It changes the game a little, right? actually removing buyer's remorse? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then we come to phase five, the acclimate phase. Now, I'll come back to this later, but this is where most businesses and most advisors, specifically in this industry, fall off the rails. The Hmm. acclimate phase is when you help the client get familiar with your way of doing business. Getting familiar with how you handle meetings, how you handle reporting, how you handle the transfer of assets, how you handle sending them prospectuses and reports, and you know, their voting th- uh, you know, uh, requirements, if you will, if they're a shareholder in stocks, how you handle private placements, et cetera, et cetera. all the different things that you are so familiar with and so used to but they have no clue and are embarrassed to ask. Hmm. We then come to phase six, the accomplished phase. This is when the client achieves the goal that they had when they originally decided to do business with you. Here's one that is also often missed by advisors. If the goal is to retire and have enough money in my retirement to be able to provide for my family and do well, you've now set the goal out 10 years, Mm -hmm. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I mean, you tell me. Depends Mm -hmm. on the client, right? They have a different goal. They have a more immediate goal. Mm. You have to find out what that is. And you have to ask and you have to probe and you have to be an investigator. You have to go on the search because if you don't know what the actual goal is, how the heck can you celebrate it? And they're going to change the goal over time. And if you don't acknowledge when you've accomplished one goal, when they redefine and create a new one, that's when you lose them because they say, Well, they haven't achieved my new goal. And you're like, You never told me your new goal. And they're like, Yeah, but you should have known my new goal. And it's like, I'm not a mind reader, I'm your advisor. Doesn't matter. That's the reality of the human condition. We then come to phase seven. This is where the client becomes loyal to you and your brand. They're not going anywhere, they are committed. They are never going to have a conversation with another advisor again. They're not going to consider any investment opportunities or any wealth management strategies without running them by you first. They are loyal. And then, and only then, do we reach phase eight, the advocate phase, when the client becomes a raving fan, referring their family members, their friends, their colleagues to your business. These are the clients we want. These are the clients we dream of. These are the clients that most advisors are trying to turn every client into when the reality is that's never going to happen. Mm. I am the customer client retention guy who's telling you, you're not going to keep them all. You're not going to turn them all into raving fans. (laughs) Stop thinking that that's what's going to happen. However, you can turn more into advocates than you currently are. I have yet to meet an advisor. On the planet who has said to me, no, Joey, we're good with referrals. We don't need any more. We're, mm. we're, we're, we're all chock full on referrals. No more referrals this quarter. <laughs> Save them for next quarter. Doesn't happen. Yet most advisors don't know how to ask for a referral. They don't know what to do with a referral when they get it, other than to cycle it through the way they handle every other client who might come in off the street. Mm. And they don't know what to do to make sure that the person who refers one, that that is the beginning of a regular referral cycle for that client. Hmm.
0: So those are the eight phases. So power. You did that masterfully well. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> it. It is such a powerful framework. I think it does such a great job of breaking these, you know, these different phases into actually what the client experience looks like. And again, I was just so impressed when I read the book at how Uh, exactly this describes the client experience, especially in the wealth management world. I want to understand a little bit, you know, we talk about two different subsets of advisors that might be listening to the show. One is uh, this institutionalized financial planning firm that has had tremendous success that is on their path to a billion, if not already getting there at assets under management. And they have some processes in place, already and they're trying to audit those processes versus the advisor who's just kind of bootstrapping this thing and getting their, their practice off the ground. And they're trying to figure out how do I do this a little bit differently, acquire clients a little bit differently than maybe advisors have in the past. How do the eight phases apply differently to those two types of advisors?
1: Sure. Well, let's, let's pull up to 35,000 feet first and talk about, uh, how those two different types of advisors see each other. Mm many of the institutionalized financial planning firms kind of have a, have a, have adopted so many systems and so many processes and have so many rules and regulations that they they maybe in some ways long for the days when they were smaller and when they were just starting out and they were, could be a little more nimble mm. the new advisors who are bootstrapping wish that they had the resources <laughs> and the offices and the setup of the big financial planning firms So everybody is kind of doing a little bit of grass is greener on the other side approach, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. There are two ways we can look at this. We can look at it from the client perspective, and we can look at it from the advisor perspective. From the client perspective, the client types are generally the same. Mm -hmm. Sure, there are some nuances, but at the end of the day, the clients are humans. They are subject to the human condition. They will navigate through these eight phases, both in terms of process and procedure, as well as the emotional roller coaster that will be this ride. It's going to be very similar, with exceptions, obviously, for the different types of demographics you might be serving. Are you serving high net worth individuals? Are you serving, you know, young folks that are just starting out uh, and kind of building their wealth uh, early in their careers? You know, there may be nuance within those, but the behaviors will be the same. Mm Let's talk about the structures. Now, some of the financial planning firms that have the systems and processes in place, to your point that you made early on in our conversation, probably haven't done an effective and honest audit of their processes in a really long time, if at ever, (laughs) if at ever, okay? And there's a lot of, well, we do it this way because we always did it this way. Let me give you an example of this. I understand that there are some regulations, and as a recovering attorney, let me be very clear, this is not legal advice, check with your compliance officers and, you know, (laughs) uh, the various fiduciaries and folks you need to check in with, okay? (laughs) But I saw something on the internet the other day that made me laugh, and to be candid, it made me think of the conversation we were going to have. And the conversation, or the, the meme on the internet said, uh... It it was a conversation between Frank and Sally. And Frank says, Sally, we need you to fax over the signature sheet on this deal. And Sally replies to Frank and says, Frank, I can't fax from where I'm at. And Frank says, Sally, where are you at? Sally replies, 2019. (laughs) That's where I'm at. Okay. (laughs) So many, so many of the things that drive me insane about this industry are things that don't need to actually be this way. Mm. They're old. They're stale. Why are we filling out all of this paperwork manually? Mm. Why are we trying to train them on our new whiz bang portal? Why do we have to have a tech training session to teach me how to navigate my online portfolio management (laughs) system? Stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. I can walk into any Apple store in the world, or frankly, even a Microsoft store, pick up a tablet, hand it to my three-year-old, and he can navigate it with no problem. And yet you're telling your 40-plus-year-old clients, high-net-worth individuals, we're going to need to set up some training so you can learn to use the portal. Oh, don't worry. We have videos to teach you. (laughs) Folks we can do better. We need to do better. Mm. That's what I'm talking about when I say they're not comparing you to the last advisor they worked with. Mm. They're comparing you to the fact that when they go on Amazon, and by the way, they all order on Amazon, (laughs) they can see the price fluctuating instantly. They can click once and have it. They can go back and review past Purchases, they can see things that are in process as well as things that have been delivered. All of this is happening online. It's happening in the app. It's happening via text message. And if they want to, they can live chat with a human about it. That's the expectation. Now, before any of your listeners say, We've heard enough of this guy, let's turn off the podcast.
0: (laughs) He's holding our feet to the fire. (laughs) I I
1: get that we're not going to get there immediately. Mm. But what I'm talking about is the mindset shift that says, are we really willing to look in the mirror and say, why do we do it this way? Why, if we have high net worth individuals coming into our firm for a meeting, and this is the sixth meeting in our office that we've had, do we not know their preferred beverage? Hmm. Instead, we say, would you like some coffee or some tea or a water? No, I would like my favorite drink of all time. You have all my money. I am paying huge fees for you to keep all of my money, still all of my money, and hopefully make me some more. Can you know my drink order, please? (laughs) At minimum. (laughs) At minimum? Right, and I pick that as a single example, and there's some advisors who are great about this i've I've got a buddy who's an advisor in washington d c He actually has a tea menu. There are like thirty teas that you can mm. choose from It's delightful. it feels high end it feels special. but I've also teased him, and he he knows me, and he when I come he does it a little bit differently. I don't drink hot drinks. Mm. I don't drink tea. I don't drink coffee. In fact, the only two things on the planet I drink are water and root beer. (laughs) I know I'm weird, but that's who I am. And if somebody really wants to get my attention and really wants to show me that they're listening, when I come into their office to meet, they have root beer. I went to a meeting not too long ago with somebody uh, about my book and they had read the book and I tell a story in the book about the root beer. And we sat down to the meeting and they said, you know, we love that root beer story. And had we been thinking we would have had some here for you. (laughs) That was the opening line, Kurt. (laughs) And they were pitching me to sign with them. And I'm thinking, it's almost worse that you told me that you knew what you should have done and didn't do it. <laughs> That's right. Like, it's almost worse. Like, on one hand, there was a part of me that was like, oh, great, you know, they they paid attention, they read the book. But there was another part that was like, "Yeah, but, like, what's the one more step to stop and get a root beer? You know what I mean? And oh, right. I want to be clear. This is not about treating your clients like prima donnas or having clients who behave like prima donnas. Hmm. This is about building personal and emotional connections. Hmm. Friends don't usually leave their advisor. Mm. Clients will leave an advisor. But if your advisor is your friend, you're going to have a much uh, bigger grace period of what you'll accept or what you'll put up with or what can go down as far as mistakes go Mm. before you leave.
0: So I I think that's really... Interesting, Joey. I think that speaks to like building relationship equity intentionally, right? Uh, but I, you know, one of the things that I, I'd love to get your opinion on is, you know, that root beer example is a very custom, thoughtful approach to creating a unique client experience. And I think as advisors, we're also preached to on the other side of this deal, oftentimes, of create a system that is scalable and that you can replicate across all of your clients. What's the balance between those two seemingly competing thoughts? Yeah, I think the balance is getting clear
1: on the difference between personalization and customization, Mm. okay? So here's what I mean by that. I look at personalization as things that make me feel that you care about me as a person. So for example, in your crazy newsletter that you send out every month that none of your clients actually read hint, hint, uh, actually having the newsletter say, dear Joey (laughs) using my name. You actually know my name. Just use it in the first sentence. Mm -hmm. It makes me that slight little thing makes it feel more personal makes it feel a little more special to me. If you know that I, I have two kids, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, go ahead and send me the article about saving for college. Mm-hmm. Don't send me the article about uh, how to maximize my cash flow when I retire. Because mm-hmm. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. By the way, I'm a good 20 years away from retirement, <laughs> minimum, minimum. So don't don't hit me with stuff that doesn't matter today. Mm -hmm. Hit me with stuff that's relevant now. Mm -hmm. Now, customization. Customization is where you take personalization to the next level and you customize the interaction for the person. That's the root beer. So here's what I would suggest your listeners do. Consider the aspects of your business where you can increase the personalization, calling people by name, targeting the messaging, making sure they only get the things that really matter to them, and pick even one or two areas for customization. Mm -hmm. It may be the drink. It may be the gift you send. Oh, and by the way, don't send the gift at the holidays. Please, just stop that behavior. (laughs) And secondly, don't send a gift with your firm's name on it. (laughs) If it has your name on it, kids, it's not a present. It's not a gift. It's a marketing tool. It's a promotional piece. It's a tchotchke. I have no problem with using those, but stop deluding ourselves and pretending that they're gifts. Mm-hmm. They're not gifts. <laughs> the best gifts you've ever received don't have the name of the giver on them. Amen. You remember who the giver was because it was such an amazing gift. John, John Rulin so, would be proud of you right now. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. John Rulin, great guy folks, if you're li- if you're listening and you haven't read John's book Giftology or followed John Rulin, R U H L I N and his work, uh, you're missing out. Amazing human being. A pro at strategic appreciation. Mm-hmm. So how do you do gifting in a way that grows your business? Um, And I realize there are rules and regulations about how much you can gift and under what circumstances you can gift. Again, consult your compliance (laughs) experts. But there are ways around this. There are ways, and and, and and I'm not saying that as a former criminal defense lawyer. I'm not talking about (laughs) end runs, right? I'm actually talking about ways that you can be fully in compliance, yet give a hyper-personalized gift. Mm -hmm. For example, find out who their favorite author is, contact the author. Get a signed copy of the book Hmm. that will cost you less than $30, which will probably be under the $50 minimum threshold that is most businesses thresholds of how much they can spend. And I guarantee that gift will go on their shelf. They will think fondly of you every time they see it. And if you can get the author to write a super personalized message, which, by the way, really just requires you reaching out to the (laughs) author. About 90% of authors will happily sell you a copy of their book with a hyper-personalized message if you'll give them a few bucks for their time. Mm-hmm. And by a few bucks, I'm talking less
0: than 20, <laughs> right? Not a lot. So lots of possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. I love that idea. I love that idea. I love that that differentiation between personalization and customization. I think what I hear a lot of what you're saying, Joey, is especially for the wealth management industry, this is a call to arms, folks. This is, you know, Gone are the days where just doing your job, your quote-unquote job, is enough just satisfying the bare minimum requirements of what it means to be an investment manager or an insurance salesman or whatever the case may be now we're stepping into this role as trusted advisor and there's a whole new bar that is being set by our clients of what earns that that title of trusted advisor and so I, I love how you've developed this framework to help us actually create an experience that encourages and deepens that trust. Joey, thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to learn more about you and your work and what you're up to, where would you have them go?
1: Well, there's a couple ways, Kurt, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, as you mentioned early on, my book is called "Never Lose a Customer Again." If you've liked the sound of my voice, you can get the audio copy, which I know you listen mm-hmm. to, Kurt. Uh, I narrate the book myself. Uh, there's also a hardback cover copy as well as an ebook. You can get that at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local indie store, wherever you shop. You should be able to track that down. Uh, secondly, I have a podcast called Experience This, which, if you're listening to this podcast, you may like other podcasts. It's all about how to create remarkable client experiences. We talk about all kinds of industries. I co host with my buddy Dan Gingis, and uh, each 30 minute podcast includes four segments. Uh, So they're short, snackable, little appetizers of customer experience delight for you to listen to. Last but not least, joeycoleman.com is my website. That's J-O-E-Y, like a five-year-old you know somewhere. Uh, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. joeycoleman.com. There you can find uh, additional resources and learn more about how we could potentially work together or how I could come speak to your audience. And there's also free resources on how to apply the ideas in the book.
0: Well, Joey, you are a wealth of knowledge, my friend. You are a blast to talk to. And I know your work is just doing, uh, have an amazing impact on your clients and ultimately on their their customers and their clients. So thanks for all you do, my friend. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kurt. Thanks so much for having me on the show. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was Uh, both challenging in all the right ways, convicting in all the right ways, and also encouraging and inspiring. You know, I think as we walk through this season with coronavirus and the market's going a little wild and we stare down the barrel of what could be uh, a pretty messy couple of years, you know, I hope this episode really encourages you that you are in such a unique opportunity to create amazing experiences for your clients, to really set the tone for what they expect from other advisors, other guides in their lives. And, you know, I would argue, and you all know this, but you play just such a special role in your clients' lives as you deal with some of the most important aspects of their lives and certainly the aspects of their lives that are getting a lot of attention as we walk through this adversity. So I hope this is encouraging to you to really double down on the experiences that you're creating for your clients. And if you'd like some help doing that, a great place to learn a little bit more about what we have learned in applying some of Joey's methodology in our clients is uh, at fpgrowth.com. Again, that's financialplannerfpgrowth.com. Look forward to chatting with you there and look forward to chatting with you on another episode in the future. Thanks for listening.